0: Okay, welcome, Pod of the West Wind listeners. I want to take a moment and thank Mac Gallenson, who dreamed this up this summer as his way of keeping folks connected to camp in a year when no one could really actually be here at camp. Mac's moving on now that it's the end of summer. He's got work and school and life starting to pick back up he's been super generous and gracious in handing the project over and allowing it to continue on without him so hopefully mac will have a chance to tap back in now and again keep the the goofy and wacky side of the pod going but in the meantime i'm hoping that a handful of us can keep what Mac started going talking to counselors campers kb and alumni This will continue to be a space where we can talk about camp, talk about how it shaped us, reminisce on favorite stories, legends, and just stay connected to the place and to one another. So thanks, Mac, for dreaming this up and getting it off the ground and now allowing it to move on while we start to look ahead to next summer. So with that out of the way, my name's Ken. I'll be hosting tonight and I'm excited to be here with a guy who was a camper for eight or nine summers. He's been a counselor for four or five summers. He's one of those who I've gotten to watch grow up here and turn into a real pillar of the camp community. Like Mac did with the pod, this guy stepped up this summer and is the reason why we got to read three great COVID editions of The Log of the West Wind. I'm really happy to have Jesse Metzger here tonight. So, Jesse, welcome. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit, Jesse, about how you came to camp, how old you were, what was your first cabin, and a little bit, uh, I guess, about what your first summer was like. Sure. My first cabin was, uh, I was an eight-year-old in the Nats.
1: I had um, been one of those campers who there are, you know, a number of these campers always through the years who, who grew up going to family camp since long before I was ever old enough even to be in the Nats cabin. So I was familiar with KV and definitely my dad, my uncle were both campers, counselors, Members of the the Kavian community for many years they've they've continued to stay you know involved in in one way or another, so I, I don't remember a time before i I knew Kavian and had some connection to the place, at least physically through through visits at the end of the summer at family camp and it wasn't until actually just until last summer that I finally worked family camp, so that was a, a cool experience to finally have and be on the other side of that. I was eight years old in the Nats. I was in nat with a couple other people who we now still have around at Cavian from time to time. Matt Sacker was in that cabin, as was uh, a cousin of his. My own cousin, Fred Metzger, who's now training with the Air Force in Mississippi, soon to be in New Mexico, was in that cabin. We had uh, the other person, I guess, that's still around is uh, Ethan Tannen, was in that cabin right across from me. Yeah, that, that, that was great. I have a lot of fond memories from that summer, but also a lot of a lot of memories of experiencing those really long rainy summer days outside for the first time and uh, a lot of long days of being a, a homesick little camper. So <laughs> I, think, I think the honest answer is it was, uh, maybe a mixed bag for me that first year, but I liked it enough to come back. And I think from that year on every summer felt like it was, it was better than the last, something new, something different. And uh, my final summer as a camper eight years later was in the Howl. So I, I was lucky to do Sort of the, the full range of cabins.
0: Yeah, wow. So eight full camper summers, not even including your intern year, right?
1: Yeah, four as a four-weeker, and then four as an eight-weeker. So I, I, I definitely got my time in.
0: Do you remember who your counselors were that first summer?
1: I do. We had Caroline Van Hattem back in, uh, in the Nets. I'm forgetting her name. We had a woman from, I believe it was Sweden.
0: Anna. Anna, yeah.
1: Uh, she was awesome. We had uh, Isaac Gustafson. I, I, is that how you pronounce his last name? And uh, Mason Mills was our intern. And Mason was actually my counselor in the owls. So another way in which that went full circle. There's a, there's a million of those of those little things like that. But so many of those people, of course, are still people that I know to this day. <laughs> and it's cool. This is the only sort of part of my life where I have connections going back that far i think uh, that that still means something to me today
0: i have said the same thing that of the people that are uh the people from when i was that age 9 10 or middle school or high school that i'm still really tightly connected to still there aren't that many but those that there are are all camp people so that must have been that was like 2004 then that you were yes you were a nat 2004 do you remember like as a camper and I know, you know, eight years, that's a long time. And so I'm sure your interests evolved over time from a gnat to an owl, but do you remember some of the favorite activities you had, some of the things that you did the most? I didn't really find anything that I sort of globbed onto and
1: did all the time in those first couple of years as a camper, which I think is fine. I actually think that is definitely the, the better way to do it. I think as an older camper, I, eventually sort of found my interest even by the time I was sort of middle uh middle camp age I was going out I'd sort of found some strong interest in trips and particularly in hiking at that point eventually kayaking but as in that I think I sort of really dabbled and and did a little bit of everything I'm impressed with myself looking back (laughs) because I certainly uh you know struggled in other ways back then uh, you know being away from home for the first time as an eight-year-old nine ten-year-old but I think I, I tried every different type of trip my first year. As a gnat? I think so. I, I, I went out on some trips where perhaps I, I shouldn't have even <laughs> been out. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, if not as a gnat, then definitely as uh, a lower
0: camper otherwise. My
1: mm-hmm. first year, actually, I had one of the craziest trips experience I've, I've ever had still to this day, uh, which was going on uh, a 24-hour experience with Mike Bell at age eight, and this was before the trip was run to Mount Pogus. I've since led that trip out at Pogus with Mike, which has been yet another one of those uh, really cool sort of full circle things. Or led it with, with Bob Linscott actually as well. And, uh, but we went out to the graveyard. That That's probably gotta be one of my strongest memories from my own personal early Canadian history is being out there sleeping right next to the graveyard, uh, not completely alone, but pretty alone in the dark. <laughs> And that was wild. Yeah. Nowadays, I don't think, I don't think anyone goes out on the 24 until they're uh, an upper camper. Although nowadays it's a different trip too.
0: Yeah. I think of that as a, as an upper camp trip, which is unusual in mm-hmm. KBN, you know, typically things are sort of not age oriented, but more just interest and ability and experience oriented. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's the one that it's, you no, know, it's a nice it's been a nice capstone experience, especially, oh, I, and even not, not just for trips, guys, but for, but for really anyone. So that's really wild that you were out there that young. Do you remember what else you did on that trip? Well, for years,
1: I, I didn't actually return to that spot again. I think it was mm-hmm. years later that I actually went back there with, uh, with Bill French on a Caribbean history walk or something like that. I couldn't believe how close to camp it actually was. It was really just right up the trail, <laughs> but I, I really didn't know exactly where I was. Even during the daytime, one of the things that we did was Mike had buried different elements of our lunch during this sort of second day of the trip in different parts of the woods. And as a group together, me as a gnat and maybe some other lower and middle campers, and then several upper campers together had to work to follow a set of clues and use a compass and basically navigate our way to where this food had been, you know, all the different elements of, uh, you know, I I think it was something with tortillas like fajitas almost or um, train wreck or something. I had to, had to go dig that up that. And then of course the solo is always the interesting part of that trip. And I, I was with someone for my night solo on that trip. But uh, it was still kind of wild being out there without a headlamp, I, as I recall. Or, um, you know, I, maybe we had one, but we, you know, we weren't using it. We were immersing ourselves. I think other than that, it was just a blur. <laughs> I remember we all painted our faces at some point. And uh, by the time we walked back into camp, I I can only imagine how he must have looked. I give a lot of credit to Mike for coming up with all that. And, and I love the direction that the that you know trip has gone and I've, I've really enjoyed being a part of that as it's evolved and turned towards mount Pages and become something for uh older cavian guys especially guys who who aren't necessarily hikers uh so to speak or or, or trips kids or things like that i love that uh, but it's still fun always to compare that with with those memories from the first time around
0: that's a special trip we'll have to ask mike if we can get Mike on here one of these nights to explain the genesis of the 24, because as far as Cabian's concerned, that was his. He he created mm-hmm. that and brought it to Cabian, and, and it's really become kind of a staple, um, although it's not offered every year any longer. It comes and goes. When it comes, it's a big, it's kind of a big deal, but I'd love to know where that came from. I actually, you said something a minute ago that I want to go back to of all the mysteries around trips, this is one that I feel like you might be able to shed some light on. I've been around for 20 something years on again, off again. So since 1985, we're talking 35 years. I have never known what train wreck is, what goes in it, uh, what's involved, how one makes <laughs> it. Uh, and if it's good though, I've heard people talk about it very fondly.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I- Rather than getting into any specific ingredients necessarily, I think
1: the most important part of that that dish is just its essence as train wreck, So long as it is a collision of of many flavors, often with sort of a you know the American Mexican or or Tex Mex kind of flavor profile, it's just kind of uh, cream cheese is a is a, a staple of it. I think it's basically taking a sort of a Tex Mex style dip. And turning it into a main meal, which goes kind of the way it sounds like it's very—you <laughs> take a bite and it kind of—you—you you haven't ever really eaten something quite like it. So cream cheese is is one of the main ingredients, avocado in some form. I think usually that was, um, you know, on Cavian trips, prepackaged guacamole, beans usually make it in there, salsa usually makes it in there, but yeah, served with tortilla and and I think um I think this could really be. Uh, I think it could be a great meal with the right um sort of starches, the right <laughs> the right type of bread, uh, so long as you got a hearty tortilla to keep it together. but um that's that's sort of the essential challenge of the meal is is wrapping up what really amounts to a big loose pile of liquid in a tortilla. that that's a pretty appetizing way to to describe it to you, isn't it?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure about appetizing, but i but it, it certainly paints a picture. I mean, is this one of those things that one can eat and be very happy eating out on the trail or, you know, out, but you try and do it at home because you're like, I always love this when I'm out hiking or, or boating or whatever. And you're like, yeah, no, this doesn't work unless, unless you're out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've seen some campers even out on the trail, not like it. And I I will never fault them for that. It is, um, you know, an, an acquired taste that's developed, of course, through, through many years on the trail with KB. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think that, I think basically the test is if you could see yourself eating like, you know, whatever seven layer dip really is, if you could see yourself like making an entire meal out of eating that with tortilla chips or, or a tortilla, then I think you would enjoy uh train wreck in any, in, in any setting, you know, in a box with a fox. Uh, on the trail with Cavian or, or uh, at home during the Corona summer.
0: Does anybody know when and how this came to Cavian? Cause I don't remember this from being on trips as a camper, although I, it may have been there. Uh, it may predate me, but I, I feel like it may have come more recently than that.
1: I really have no idea.
0: I think some of my earliest memories with it were with, Some of
1: those hiking staff from several, from a good handful of years ago, uh, when there were many from NC State uh, that Terry had connected with Kavian. If I had to make a guess, maybe it it, it was from there. That's where my earliest memories are uh, with some of those folks, but I don't really know for certain. Terry's got all sorts of culinary tricks up his sleeve, so I I will never underestimate him. Yeah, for all I know, (laughs) it could be his brainchild.
0: One of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was hiking, although not, not camp hiking specifically. So when I sat with Mac and we did one of these, one of the things we ended up talking about was that in 1997, my brother Mark and I thru-hiked on the Appalachian Trail. And I have this funny memory from a family camp of showing my pictures from that trip to you and your dad. And then some years later, right, you did your own AT thru-hike. What year was that that you went mm-hmm. out?
1: I threw hiked in 2015 and think it was not my first, but it was one of my, I think maybe only my second summer since uh, 2004 when I was in Nat that I had not been at Cabian. Um, I had started in February of 2015, very late in February, and hiked uh, March, April, May, June, and finished in late July, about five months later. And uh, then after that, went to college in, in mid August. And so I, I missed out on a KVN summer there. But I, I do remember still being at KVN at some point that summer. I, uh, I must have stopped in for a visit at some point to say hello. I probably had pretty <laughs> long, uh, crazy hair and, <laughs> and a bunch of gross facial hair still clinging on to me. So <laughs> and, and probably still some, some hiker stench hanging on. <laughs> it takes many showers to, in a row to get that off. as as you probably know very well yourself.
0: I I do remember. I don't remember that you uh, were carrying any hiker stench when you came to visit, but I do remember that you definitely (laughs) looked like you had just gotten off the trail Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. So, so you did that in between high school and college. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, um, I think the idea of taking a, a gap year like that, if that's what you want to call it, is something that more and more people are, are, uh, are sort of encountering that idea and thinking about doing, especially now within this past half a year or so um, with coronavirus and everything, people are are, are looking for ways to um, make whatever their, their college experiences are sort of work for them or work for their, their timeframes. For, for me, I really didn't have any other reason to put off going to school or, you know, or otherwise to put off, you know, maybe starting to, to work somewhere that felt like a career. I, I didn't, I didn't have a, any other reason except for just having a number of things like the AT that I wanted to go do. It went pretty well that whole year. The AT I think was, um, you know, finishing that and having a really positive experience there uh, was for sure a big part of that. And um, that year though, right after I graduated from high school did include the previous summer at and hiking with and too though. And, and honestly had <laughs> just as much fun doing that. It's something that I think if if you have a plan, if you have a vision for how you're going to spend some time where you are, um, you know, taking a break between things in your life like that, for me, it was really positive. So long as you have goals, so long as you have things ahead of time that you know you want to do experiences that you'd like to have, I would certainly recommend that definitely even if it's not going out and doing a through hike. Although, um, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you think. I think that idea of a through hike actually is something that a lot more people could do that. They, if they really just went for it, then, then, you know, maybe people think, I think it's actually something that uh, especially guys at Cavian who have had some experience hiking or being out in the woods elsewhere. I think it's something that,
0: you know, I'm always
1: happy to talk to <laughs> to KVN campers about the AT and about, you know, about what it's like to put together a through hike like that, just as I did with a few KVN staff when I was a camper and intern before setting out to do all that. Colin Zwazinger, I remember, was one person that I talked to about a through hike and um, several others.
0: Do you remember, I mean, so we're talking five years ago already, and I know how sort of the passage of time makes some of the, it makes it sort of blur together, but I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, what were your favorite parts of your trip, but also like, could you put your finger on what sort of the low point of your trip was? Do you have strong recollect of those those low moments?
1: Well, as as far as like I think there's a there's a number of ways you could think about it. As far as like actual sections of, of trail go, I think um the, the parts of the trail that people recognize as, as being physically the hardest, I think actually were some of the most interesting for me. The whites, of course, because I I grew up hiking there with Kavian and and getting to the whites after you know, many, many states of unfamiliar terrain kind of felt like coming home. And and that just continued right into Maine, which I'd visited a bunch also with Kavian So sometimes people talk about the climbs in the whites or Mahusik Notch. And and I'm sure these are all things you've heard too, mm-hmm. as being uh, the real physical challenges as far as sections of, of trail go. But I, I actually thought they were the most rewarding and they they almost made it the easiest. For me, those, the, The hardest miles and sort of my lowest points during the day on trail, I think, were maybe more towards the mid-Atlantic region, where actually the miles sort of came the easiest, but it felt really monotonous and you weren't that high up. So it was um, the heat and humidity were definitely uh, (laughs) slowing me down. And and that's sort of my big struggle. (laughs) Like I got very used to being uh, in the cold and up high on the mountain with cavian trips and all that actually felt familiar to me. But I struggled a lot with the heat and with just the amount of hours that you need to spend out in that sort of sweaty, buggy environment, mm. physically and mentally. I think that. there are a lot of low points in there. I think if there was one single point, it might be um, reaching a shelter, gosh, probably somewhere in probably northern Virginia, I think, after I'd already been on trail for probably a couple months by that point i was I was hiking on my own, and I think I reached a shelter around nine thirty or ten p m in the evening, um, which is pretty late for through hikers out there generally to be on trail. I had sort of hiked through a bit of a thunderstorm and and luckily by the time I was getting higher up towards the shelter, it was just the thunder was gone and it was raining. but i sort of I reached there in the rain still drizzling and and as I showed up, it started to to downpour much harder right at the exact moment as I looked in and realized that the whole shelter was, was completely full and (laughs) being this late at night and uh, being that tired after, after a long day, I, instead of trying to pitch my tarp in the rain, I decided just to try and sleep underneath the shelter. So basically (laughs) underneath the floorboards where there was a, you know, a few feet of space and, and all the floor space that you wanted. And it was just the ground. So, you know, I put down my, my ground cloth and um, didn't have to worry about a tarp or anything. But I learned that night why people don't do that. Because <laughs> every smell from all the hikers above
0: <laughs>
1: was really filtered down in a very powerful way. It was, it was miserable even before the mice showed up. And that was the real kicker it was literally being crawled over by 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 the mice that i i presume were leaving everybody else up on top of the floorboard to sleep but all of a sudden they had this person sleeping right down in there <laughs> underneath the shelter lair <laughs> and uh, i could feel them crawling across the sleeping deck. Oh. so that was a long night <laughs> i never had to deal with that anywhere else and i never and i never sort of made that type of decision again
0: <laughs> oh man that's awful <laughs> yeah but there is
1: you know as the lows are low the highs are high of course uh, like so many things you know definitely some of my favorite days of hiking that I've ever had definitely a couple of the best meals I've ever had certainly the best meal I've ever had were all on that trail and sort of speaking to the point you made about the train wreck <laughs> not necessarily because they were great in and of themselves but because of the environment uh, yeah. and the the story of, you know, of getting to them and, and all that. Do you have any, any of those memories yourself? Do you have a specific low point that you can remember these years later?
0: We spent our second night on top of Blood Mountain, which I think we had originally planned on being in that area day four, but it was just, you know, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I made it there several days in. We had bivy sacks and tarps Uh, which I think you did the whole way we didn't last nearly I didn't last nearly as long with a bivy sack and tarp because it snowed on us hard that night it was sleeting in the middle of the night and we're under there and I'm just exhausted but I can't sleep and I'm getting really wet and really cold and thinking like oh man this was such a mistake but but like you say right you know so I don't think I slept that night and really struggled. Uh, but but when we got up in the morning, it had, the, you know, the sun had come out, it was probably 10 degrees out, our sleeping bags and the tarps and everything else were just frozen. And so I remember taking my sleeping pad and, and like, hammering it against a tree to break the ice off so I could roll it up and, and pack it. And just being like, Oh, man, you know, this is beautiful and, and pretty, pretty wild. But I'm hurting, you know, we'd done some some big days. And then from Blood Mountain, you drop down to um, Neil's Gap, which is sort of the first mm-hmm. point after Springer Mountain that you cross life. And, you know, we spent a couple hours there, we dried out, got some food. But the same thing, we were so dumb, you know, we were like, well, let's just, keep, you know, it's only one in the afternoon, we're not going to sit here all day. So we got back on the trail. And, and did like another eight miles, which like we were just bruising ourselves. But at the end of that day, we we rolled up on a campsite and there were some other people there and we met a couple of people that we ended up pretty much with for the entire rest of the trip, including one guy who, you know, I, I would count among my closest friends in the world at this point, even though we we only see each other probably once every few years. So the lowest of the lows are typically i think on the on the trail followed by by real high points otherwise you get you get off mm-hmm. of home i think you know if, if they weren't yeah. so all that being said would you do it again or if you had had the opportunity would you do a different trail w- what's the next adventure that you would have your eye on i had at one point in time hoped to be doing the pct
1: the pacific crest trail which goes through california Oregon and Washington and is uh, a little bit longer than the AT as, mm-hmm. as you may know uh, mileage wise, but um, roughly the same length. I'd hope to be doing that this uh, spring and summer, but um, plans change and, and <laughs> certainly they have for a lot of people in this past half a year. So that's, that's still on the back burner right now. We'll see
0: mm-hmm.
1: interested in, in getting out to do something like that in in whatever form though. So, so maybe for me, if it's anytime soon, it would be a, a paddling trip where I um, you know, put away the whitewater boat for a little while and do a bunch of flat water, in a, maybe in a canoe with a partner or in a kayak or something like that. The, the parts about the AT that I liked the most, even as someone who really uh, came to love hiking at Cavian and for whom that was sort of one of my first, uh, the first things that I recognized that I, I loved doing. I think um, with something like the AT, I'd be curious to hear your experience, too. But for me, it was never actually the miles or rarely the, the actual, you know, moment to moment experiences on trail that made the experience what it was. It was just sort of the lifestyle of, of traveling that way, of being in a different place every night, of camping, of going by your own power, uh, if not necessarily on foot. And of getting to see all the, the sights and sounds along the way. I, I thought that the most interesting part for, for me of the, of the AT, at least, were going through towns were sort of meeting people who were either other through hikers or just connected to the trail in some interesting way, you know, trail angels or hostel mm. owners or, or whatever. So almost it feels like the setting and the actual activity in a weird way matter the least to me. And uh, whatever gets you out going for something like that for a few weeks at a time or a few months at a time with that type of lifestyle, I, that's sort of what I, I hope I'll be able to, to do again. Um, and I definitely plan on it if I can.
0: I think of that as being a real aspect of, of camp in that guys do all these different things and a lot of guys are very focused on one or two particular activities, whether it's trips or it's the arts or it's sailing or, you know, whatever it is, you know, they're, they might be there at camp to do that thing or those one or two things. But what's always most notable to me is just watching, watching guys settle in and be there and watching them, you know, learn how to take care of themselves and learn how to be. It's always sort of astonishing to me to look around at the in the assembly ground uh, in the morning and think like man like we've got 8 and 9 year olds who are waking up in the morning and like figuring out for themselves what to wear and getting themselves dressed and getting them out the door getting themselves out the door and and into their day like they you know they have help but but by and large and certainly by the end of the summer like they're doing that for themselves they're just living very independently for someone that young. And, and I think it's just as notable for 14 and 15 year olds that they are managing themselves and managing their their daily everything. And so I, I take what you mean, like on the trail, it's, it's being out there, you know, 20 mile days, 30 mile days, up and over 4,000 footers in the whites or through the the green tunnel in Virginia like you know it's all awesome and and it's nice that you get to see all these different things but it is kind of just about being out there and the people that you're with mm-hmm. and the, and and I do really I did really love the idea of of a point a to point b significant trip in fact it was it was really years after finishing the at that I could enjoy going out for a day hike or even a couple day hike mm-hmm. because it just felt like <laughs>
1: that's so funny that you say that
0: yeah That is a lead-in to sort of my last question about the A.T., though we could talk about it probably all night, you and Mm -hmm. and me. I have to imagine that you felt changed for it, for having done it. felt like a different person once you were in Maine than you were when you started off in Georgia. I wonder if you can articulate that, and and I wonder if it surprised you in any way, sort of where you found Mm -hmm. yourself at the end of the trail.
1: That's a great question. I, I don't think I was surprised by anything too much. Uh, if anything, I was actually a little surprised by how easy it felt getting back to the real world after being on trail, which is not something that's true for everybody. I had definitely heard about, you know, the difficulty with which some thru hikers get off the trail, whether they've done a long section or the whole thing and had to reintegrate themselves to uh, their job go back to the life they had before their trail the advantage I had and I think the advantage a lot of people would have if they're in a situation similar to mine at that time where you're you're pretty young and you're moving on to new things in life anyway you know whether that's school or a job or, or, or elsewhere I was going right to college after that so I got to sort of decompress for a week or two and then start a whole new chapter of my life right. and focus elsewhere but yeah it's it's so it's so crazy for me to think how how different it would have been you know showing up to start that next sort of section of my life after after not having had that experience the previous five months or really the the experience of the previous 12 months of not being a student of um you know at that point really having my first full-time jobs doing things outside of camp, um, oftentimes that we were very much inspired by camp with hiking and kayaking for me personally, uh, but out of my own volition, uh, sort of for the first time um, things that I'd sort of set up myself for myself. I think it gave me a lot of confidence to do that, to, you know, pick out a job somewhere that I knew I could do and, and get hired and, and spend a season doing it and to pick out a challenge like the AT. And I think there, there are ways that I've, I've, benefited from the experience that I, I probably don't even realize that, that I can't articulate at all. I think it more noticeably changed a lot of little things. Like a, a lot, I, I still to this day notice a power outlet that's just out in public because your eye becomes so attuned to that, at least as a thru-hiker in in the, the decade that I did it. I don't know about uh, cell phones, certainly were not as much a thing Uh, when you hiked as as they were when I did so you weren't always goal number one when you came into town I I expect was not charging your smartphone (laughs) or your or your cell phone or your external battery
0: right I had none of those things in 1997 right I I remember seeing exactly one person in five months on the trail who had a phone and it didn't work it didn't work Mm -hmm. anywhere except in town and so we all kind of laughed at this guy because it was like your phone only works when you get into town and we can all get on the phone in town because there's a payphone right over there we all had the you know calling cards and you'd you'd punch in like this code and and it would charge your credit card and you could call you know whoever you know no one was i, I didn't know anyone who was blogging their adventure certainly um mm-hmm. i didn't have a digital camera i had a 35 millimeter camera i was shooting slide film and when I would finish a roll of 36 exposures I would put it in a envelope and mail it back to my parents when I whenever I would get into town Mm -hmm. and we were developing it so I didn't you know but yeah no digital camera no cell phone nothing to charge whatsoever I carried a walkman for a few portions of the trail but that was it, you know, and we would listen to the same tapes over and over again. And actually what we did a ton of was we would listen to NPR because you could reliably pick that up just about anywhere. And, it, and listening to the radio didn't use up as much battery.
1: Well, it's funny. I, I listen to a lot of uh, NP, uh, podcasts that are affiliated with or, or aired on NPR from my, my smart device <laughs> while I was on the trail. I think I actually, I learned a ton just from, from listening. Oh, for for, sure. for, to everything for for such long periods of
0: time i mean would you use your phone like would you make calls in the evening from the trail would you would you check the weather and and see what the forecast was and that stuff in, in many places you could uh and i i don't think i
1: took advantage of that as much as some hikers did but i i definitely remember um oftentimes if I, you know if i could get signal up on some ridge at some point in the hours before I was going to camp, I would, I would make my decision about whether or not to set up a tarp based on, you know, what the, what the, you know, the quick forecast looked like for the evening. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you are, you're, you're limited in, in some ways still in what you can do, but, uh, sure. I think that's one part of the trail that will continue to, uh, the experience will continue to change for people as those sort of things continue to, developed I didn't listen to any music or anything for the first first at least 700 miles of the AT I I hadn't warmed up to the idea of hiking with earbuds in and hiking with electronics because I'd I'd come of course from the hiking tradition at Cavian um, and I loved that Uh, but as as I was starting to do a lot more hiking by myself it was right around I think it was on the ascent towards McAfee's Knob which for those listening uh, who aren't familiar with a, a random waypoint in Virginia <laughs> is just kind of a, a scenic uh, overlook that is, is sort of trail famous.
0: It is the scenic overlook that isn't Katahdin or Springer, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: So I remember that point uh, just for, for sure. McGaffey's knob, but I think I started listening to podcasts then. And, mm-hmm. um, and I never, I never sort of looked back.
0: You know, it's, I, I think it's really interesting the the question of technology, because right, like, we didn't have phones in 97 that, you know, we didn't really have phones. But even if we had phones, they couldn't check the weather. And, and, um, you know, they certainly didn't have GPS baked into them. But I think once those things exist, it's kind of, it's impossible and almost foolish, not, not to go out there with them. And, you know, there's an ethic I know, and, and I know plenty of people who refuse to or would prefer to refuse to have those things with them. But, you know, they're, they're a part of hiking now. They're a part of life now. And I can think of numerous times on the trail where I'd have loved to have had some hint about what weather was coming. And at least a few mm-hmm. occasions when I would have loved to have been able to fire up a, a GPS app and be like, where am I? I know that feeling.
1: <laughs> I've certainly gone in the wrong direction.
0: Have you really? How many, <laughs> how far in the wrong direction did you go?
1: <laughs> I feared that question was coming. I had a couple moments. Uh, one of them, I, I, I think I can blame on some confusing trail signs and some really confusing junctions where it, you know, it appears that white blaze is going in three different directions. <laughs> but, um, You know, but I I don't know what it was. Sometimes I think I might have just been been wrapped up in my podcast. Uh, There was just (laughs) one main point I remember two and a half miles after, uh, you know, the last time I looked at my guidebook, coming across a hiker who I knew had been south of me, behind me, since I was heading north. But all of a sudden, he was walking towards me from the north, going south you know as i thought and uh <laughs> it didn't take very long of, of talking to him to realize that uh you know he wasn't slack packing or anything <laughs> he, <laughs> and i had seen him earlier that morning he had just finally caught up as i was going the wrong direction and then and then turned right around and hiked the same couple miles for the third time that day yeah. it's amazing how uh, i mean one would think the the longer you go the the less any mile or half a mile or two-tenths of a mile would mean to you, given how far you've, you've traveled up to that point. But I, I think it's so true for almost every thru-hiker I've met that the farther along you are on your thru-hike, the less willing you are to tolerate any kind of walking or hiking that does not result in, in just northbound or southbound forward progress.
0: Well, or just, just sort of you're stripped to your essentials. It's like, if that isn't, Mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, it's the same as it's that idea, right. Of if you don't take it out of your pack, you know, once, once a day or at least every other day, then it's time to consider dropping it from your pack because obviously Mm -hmm. you can, you can do without it. And so you, you sort of get down to that very essential existence of if it's not helping me towards the end then then really what's the point you know I do want to ask like so what's what's next for you now like I know you're you're living in the Boston area you're working um you're graduated college Mm -hmm. what's the rest of your year look like and and where do you hope to be (laughs) come summer well great question and next summer I hope to
1: be uh where I expected and hope to be uh this summer which is at cave and hopefully paddling with campers and we're uh, doing something else similar, everything has sort of been thrown up in the air for a little bit my my scheme my my big plan for these couple of years post college right now, is um, a little bit like that year I took before starting college to get in a few of these work experiences and a few of these life experiences, including some some outdoor things that may get harder to do as a uh, life forges on so I studied um film and media as my my major in college and and minored in journalism and got a lot of good experiences as a student working with um, not just film but um writing and audio and all sorts of other digital media things and I don't know exactly what I'd like to do with that next other than sort of putting that on pause just for a brief moment in my life and uh Doing certain things, again, like working at camp, perhaps another through hike down the road, before uh, you know, a hopeful career in, in something something related to those areas might whisk me away. We will, we will see. Uh, right now, I'm just sort of getting used to the still getting used to the idea of not knowing exactly what's next. I certainly, um, at points in the past had uh, had these seasons a little more planned out. Right now, I'm living in the Boston area, living with family right now. That's been my game plan since I learned that the the KDN summer wasn't going to happen. Luckily for me, I found some really good work that's been a decent thing to do during sort of this whole pandemic situation, but also something that's been really fun and interesting for me, which is cooking again. I'm working for a company that does both takeaway meals from a shop close to Boston and also some catering. So yeah, it's been a weird time. I I still feel sort of a sense of loss about uh, the KB summer that, that could have been had, even though we've all had, had plenty of time to think that through and look towards the future and look towards future summers. But, you know, as I learned on the AT, as I learned as a, a camper at KB, and, and in a lot of those <laughs> kind of challenging environments like that, I think there's a silver lining to everything. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. finding a lot of those and all these these twists and turns that have come up at this point in time.
0: Uh, that's really well said and probably a good note to go out on. So I love the idea that we'll get you back to camp next summer. I really look forward to that. And uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what that does, uh, how good that makes us feel. So thank you. And, and I'm excited to get you guys back. I missed all of you this summer and we're, we're doing our best. We'll be back. Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you for all your work on the, on the log of the West Wind this summer. That was such a treat. I think I speak for a lot of folks in saying that that, that went a long way towards softening the blow and, and easing the, mm. the loss this summer. So thanks for all your hard work. We'll be back at some point. I don't think we'll be putting these podcasts out necessarily every week uh, like Mac had been doing. But as we find folks who are interested in coming on and talking with us, we will share those conversations with you. So Jesse, have a great night. You all have a great night and we'll be back soon.